welcome to IDD Get to Know Me, a mental health podcast where nothing is off the table. Wait, what does IDD mean? IDD stands for Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. You will hear from us, people with IDD, and experts on topics that are important to us and our mental health. I'm your host, Victor. And I'm Daniel. On this week's episode, we're going to get to know Dr. Yona Lansky, the director of Azrealia Adult Neurodevelopmental Center and H-Card Program at CAMH. So, Yona, first of all, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Victor and Daniel. Glad to be here. Awesome. Thanks for thanks for being here, Yona. Um, and it's it's great to have you join us for this episode. Uh, to begin with, uh, maybe you could just uh, let us know a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm. Uh, I'm. I, during the day, I'm I'm directing this uh, exciting center, the Azrieli Adult Neurodevelopmental Center at CAMH, and I've been working at CAMH for about 20 years now, um, uh, and uh, I've been studying, you know, what happens for people who have developmental disabilities uh, for that whole time. It's something I'm really passionate about. Um, when I'm not at work. I am uh, trying to pick up all the socks that have been thrown all over the house uh, and wash the dishes uh, and take care of my family. Um, and I guess I should say that um, one of the people in my family has a disability, which is one reason why um, I love to do the work that I do. Speaking of your sister, I heard she has a disability. How does that impact your everyday life? Well, I think as as you've shown in some of your other shows you had on siblings, my everyday life has always been with my sister. So I can't really talk about how it would be different if she wasn't my sister. Um, but um, these days we don't live in the same house anymore. Um, but she doesn't live very far, and uh, especially during COVID, we um, we try to connect with each other virtually. Um, a lot because she doesn't have too many programs and things going on right now. Um, and also we probably see each other um, now that it's allowed um, face to face, um, you know, a number of times every week just uh, to keep each of us uh, healthy and happy. That's awesome. So Jonas, can you tell us more about how you got involved in the in CAMH and what inspired you to work with people with special needs? Sure. I mean, there's the kind of the long answer and the short answer for that one. I think I probably was inspired or thought this was important just because it's part of what I grew up with. And it was always really important to me. Oh, just one thing. Well, first of all, I think if someone told me that I was going to like, you know, take on all this responsibility at CAMH, I'd say, forget it. That sounds bananas, right? Because you kind of go in steps. So I, I took baby steps, Victor. I was in school for about eight, uh, eight years before I, I had my first full-time clinical 
job so i was studying this for a long time and gradually kind of getting into it and my job has also changed a lot over the last twenty years so it's grown but the thing that probably got me really excited and sort of kick started me to do my work besides my own experience maybe with my sister and my family i worked at an overnight camp one summer with people with developmental disabilities with kids for the first month and with adults in the second month and i was working with a lot of other amazing sort of you know high school university age staff and we had really good creative ideas and we had fun and the people that we were working with were all amazing but i was shocked to learn about some really awful tragic things that had happened to some of them in their lives some of the people who came to that camp setting spent most of their days in an institution and they would just come to this camp for like a week or two weeks for the year it was back when we had institutions open in ontario and other bad things really awful things that happened to you know a number of the people who were there and it just seemed kind of unjust to me it was a bit heartbreaking to be honest and i think that seeing that and seeing how kind of unfair and how wrong some of those things were um, when i noticed that it wasn't something we were talking about when i went to school uh, i just thought my gosh like hello um, this is something we have to do something about and maybe i'm good at doing it so that's i think how i got started and um, i i still see things victor that break my heart it's not like i just saw those things once um, these things are still all around us um, and uh, you know maybe maybe i i do this work because i feel like every little bit um, counts and can make a difference um, but when i went to university i i didn't really know for sure what i wanted to do and i don't think i knew this is what i would end up doing but i just had a fantastic teacher actually in my first psychology course um, and i thought psychology makes so much sense it's an interesting way to think about you know all people people with disabilities people without disabilities but what was really clear to me the more psychology courses i took was that we never really talked about how all the things I was learning about how the human mind works, why we behave the way we do. We never really learned about what that meant for people like my sister, people with disabilities in general. So I kind of thought, wow, that's a gap. I wonder if I could be a clinical psychologist and help people, but take all the stuff we talk about with people generally and then think about those gaps for people with disabilities um, and do that kind of work. So. Um, I sort of focused in a little bit more closely on on mental health. I was always interested in what makes people happy or unhappy. Um, and then, uh, yeah, over time, the program just kind of grew. And probably the more the more I think about it for myself or even watch things, um, you know, in my own family or in people that I know, I get a lot of good ideas um, from other people. And then uh, more and more of us are talking about these things. And I guess, yeah, the program's just gotten bigger over time. Makes sense. Makes sense. And uh, what do you love most about working in uh, in this field? I hate that people don't think sometimes about studying the things I like to study, but I love the fact that there's so many things that haven't been studied yet. So we get to be creative all the time. And every time we come up with a new research idea, it's like, wow, well, how would we do that? I'm like, I don't know. How should we do that? And we get a lot of really interesting ideas from different people. Um, and we invent things, you know, and uh, everyone gives their feedback on if it's working or if it's not. And, and we just come up with a new way of doing it if it doesn't work. And I find that um, exciting. Um, you know, even this podcast, right? Like, do you remember how we started the podcast? 
Um, did we know if it was going to work? Um, you know, I think, (laughs) but it does, it's a fantastic podcast, right? We just thought, well, this is, this is something that's missing. Why isn't there a podcast like this? And, you know, will it work? I don't know. Let's see. Right. So I think research is like that too. We have to think carefully about how we do research so that it's not harmful and we don't hurt people when we do it. But if we're careful, um, we can ask new questions and sort of discover, um, you know, new ways of doing things and sort of ways that really make a difference. That kind of gets at our uh, next question a little bit. Um, so could, could you tell us um, why it's so important to do research regarding IDD? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at how our world operates, even like, let's just think about healthcare. How do we decide, you know, what healthcare services we're providing or what treatments we give for different problems? We figure it out through research, right? So we study something, we make a discovery that something works and then we do it. So, you know, it's COVID right now. Um, people discovered um, that vaccines can make a difference and save lives. And so we give people the vaccine, right? Well, if we make all of our decisions about, about how to help people um, with disabilities of any kind without any of the research saying how to do it, then the research might work and it, it might be wrong, right? So if we want to know, you know, how do you help someone who has Um, Down syndrome in terms of their depression, you know, how do we help support them with that depression if we don't actually study it with that with people with Down syndrome, then the things we're going to come up with are, you know, they may not work. So, so we have to do research um, with people about the things that matter to them to figure out, I guess, how to make things better for them. Now, now you're saying with people, uh, why why is it important to involve self advocates in uh, in research? You know, it's a great question, Daniel. And I would say, you know, in the 20 um, odd years that I've been doing research, there's there's been a shift, right? So earlier on, like, you know, we studied people with developmental disabilities and we kind of, we being the researchers, the experts, we kind of knew how to do things. We knew what was best and we came up with how to study things. Um, But they're not things, they're people, right? And so if we're gonna study people, you know, we can come about it with our own ideas as researchers of how to do it, or we can have a dialogue, a conversation to figure out what's most important to the people who are involved in the studies. And we can kind of get their buy-in and, 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 and do it in a way that is sensitive to how they want things to be done. You know, I think it's probably gonna be better research. Um, and it's also probably gonna make people trust research more and be more excited about research. So I think that's, those are reasons I think of. Are there things that make research in IDD particularly challenging? What are some of these challenges? Um, Yeah, there's probably a couple of things that make this kind of research hard. Um, One thing that's hard is that, um, for some people anyways, is that um, to do research safely, we want to make sure we're explaining what it is that we're doing really clearly and that people are giving informed consent. So they understand what it is they're agreeing to. They have a choice to do it or not do it. Um, They understand what could go wrong if they do it, what the risks are, and they also understand what could be good about it. But sometimes explaining those things can be complicated. Um, And some studies, some research studies are actually kind of complicated. So one challenge is how do we explain things so people really understand what it is that they're agreeing to and that they're really sort of giving that kind of um, consent without sort of being 
um, tricked into doing something or, you know, um, coerced, like it's really their choice and they're not doing it because other people think they should or other people they feel are making them do it. Um, so that's one thing that's hard. I think another thing that can be hard is um, often when we do research, you know, a lot of the research I do would be like with surveys and things, right, where you fill out, you know, a lot of multiple choice kinds of questions uh, to give your answers. We have to read to understand how to answer those questions, right? So it's not just understanding what you're agreeing to, but actually the study itself sometimes might be a bit complicated and we have to think about ways to make it easier so everybody understands it and can participate um, and also that it doesn't cause people stress. So, you know, let's say we want to study, I don't know, we're interested in studying how a new kind of um, technology helps people, um, but the technology is kind of stressful for that person. So how do we help them be in the research without feeling really stressed out when they're doing it, right? So um, those are a few of the challenges I think that, that might happen. And also I think even when we're doing a project, let's say we're doing a project and it's a good project and we've talked with people with disabilities about the project, they think it's important, they want to see it happen. But then a lot of the people who we want to be in the project, they don't even know what research is, they never hear about it. Right, so they have no way of knowing they can be part of it. So it can be a challenge to find the people we want to get involved in research if they're not used to being part of research. Oh, and I just thought of one more, if I can say one more, is that sometimes people have done research before in a way that was upsetting for them. So maybe they didn't understand what they were doing in the research, or it got them really stressed out, or they felt really badly about it after. So they may not want to do research again because they think um, it's not going to be done in a way that feels uh, supportive to them. So they might not want to be involved in research. So we have to um, help make sure what we're doing is safe, but also help people feel like they can trust the research that's happening. How do you find people for the research? Like, how do you recruit people for the right research? Because everybody has their own little quartz and their own little their own little ideas for how the world should work. So how do you find people to do the right type of research? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that we do at Azrieli, which I think is really helpful, is before we start a study, um, you know, if we're trying to research um, people who have disabilities, then we'll talk to people with disabilities about the study and get some of their ideas about how to recruit or find people to be in the study, right? Because I might have my own ideas, but it's way better if I talk to people who can relate to what it is that I want to do and use their ideas. You know, I might think it'd be a great idea if I just put something on Twitter because I look at Twitter all the time and then people will see it on Twitter and they'll say, oh, that's a good project for me. But maybe the people I want to be in the project never look at Twitter. So I have to find out, well, what do you look at? How would you find out about a project, you know? Um, so sometimes it might be kind of word of mouth where different people who understand what it's about might be able to tell other people about it. Sometimes it might be something that we write about it or a video that we make about it. Um, I think it's always good to have partnerships with people in the community so that they can help spread the word for you. And then to get the right kinds of people, it's helpful to let people know what kind of people you're looking for for a project um, so they don't get involved in something if they're not really uh, right for the project. And um, so how, how do you find people who, uh, who share the values of, of the center, for instance, people who are, you know, who share the value of inclusion and diversity and things like that? 
So you're thinking more about people who kind of work or do stuff with us at Azrieli? Um, uh, people who work at the center or people who help with, um, just help with research, uh, all, all aspects of that stuff. Okay. So, so I think, um, sometimes it just starts with the conversation. I'm trying to think about how, how you each got involved with Azrieli. You know, sometimes what happens is, um, you know, I, Daniel, I heard you give a talk a long time ago and I was just like, wow. He said mm -hmm. something I never thought about before. That was amazing, you know, and, um, you know, we had some conversations after that. And over time, we kind of thought, wow, that that kind of fits with some of the things we're trying to do at the center. And Victor, same thing. I think the first time I, I came across your work, Victor, was um, a film that you were involved in. And you were such a powerful actor in the film. I thought, oh, my gosh, wow. Um, and then we were doing some films and. I thought maybe that would be good. Maybe you want to be involved in those films because you're a really good actor. So sometimes you just meet people. I'm more than just a pretty face. I'm also have a mind as well. <laughs> That's right. A one-two combo, if you will. Thanks, Victor. So yeah, sometimes I think we meet people who think um, you. Know, we try to make it really clear to people what Azrieli does, so people kind of know what they're what they're signing up for. But the more you share the kinds of things that you're excited and you're interested in. I think sometimes people who are also and excited and interested in the same kinds of things um, find their way um, uh, to similar activities and stuff and, and people meet. And I think having conversations, doing activities, being open to always learning and meeting new people, I think that's one way that helps um, bring people to the center. How do you hire people with the right mindset? Like, how do you differentiate a good worker from a worker who just wants to get paid? Because I've had, like, teachers and EAs who are great, but I have other type of workers and EAs, like, just are there for the paycheck. How do you... How do you like differentiate for people who are passionate about their job other than from people who want to get the paycheck? How do you do that in such an yeah. amazing manner? Thanks, Victor. I guess two ideas I have. I mean, one is, you know, anytime you're sort of posting for something and you're trying to hire people, you want to describe exactly what the job is about. And you can make the job sound like it's something else and get certain people, but the more honest you are with really what it is that you're looking for, you're more likely to get people who can really do that kind of thing. So it starts with how you describe what people will do and, and you hope that the people who'd be the best at it are most excited about it. Then you have some like kind of interview where you really talk to people and I think you can ask them questions to try to figure out, you know, is that passion really there? You know, give me some examples, talk about it. Um, but one thing I've learned is that, you know, there are some people who are amazing at their job, um, but it might be really hard in that kind of one-on-one -on -one interview conversation to give that perfect answer, right? So um, I think it's really important to give people different ways that they can show why they're excited about this kind of work um, and not just to listen to what people say in an interview. Um, and also to think about um, not so much like how do you get the right people, but how do you make the right fit for what people can do that's exciting um, and that they're passionate about with things that need to be done, you know, like here at CAMH at, at the center where I work at Azrieli or, or anywhere. So it's, it's often about how do we fit the job 
to people um, so that that everyone um, benefits because you can you can have a great person and then they can do a great job but if they're not well supported to do that job it might be really stressful or hard for them and they won't stay at it very long so I think we have to think about how we um, help um, people to sort of um, help them do the best they can you know I, I think that's um, I think that's actually a really important point you know, especially when it comes to things like the interviewing, the onboarding process, like for me, like, you know, you can tell how I'm able to speak and, and such when we're having a conversation. But for various reasons, when I do a job interview, for instance, um, that doesn't work so well for me, given some things that I have to deal with. So, like, I think it's very important to highlight, you know, those alternative ways of, uh, of onboarding and finding out people's strengths. Um, I think that's great. Now, um, switching gears just for a second. Um, so obviously we're in a very particular point in time right now with the pandemic and everything. Um, and I'm just wondering uh, what is some of the research that you've been working on uh, on recently during this time? Wow, you know, I, I think some people have said when it comes to research, the pandemic's really, really shut down the research that they're doing. A lot of things have had to go on hold. Um, and maybe that's true for some of the things we've been doing at the center. But again, I think if you're listening, um, there are so many things that need to be studied that are happening right now. It's almost like there's never been a more important time for us to be able to take the things we know about how to do research and study them and learn uh, and not learn so that five years from now, I can tell you these are all the things you could have done better during the pandemic but like study them and learn, this is something we should try right now because it's already making a difference. Or you know what, we've been doing this, it's not working that well, maybe we should do less of it. So we've been studying things like, um, you know, what's the most important information that people are missing right now that they need for the pandemic and what's the best way to explain it? So whether it was about, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, understanding some of the new public health rules or explaining to people what vaccines are about because that was going to be so important uh, when they first came out. So we actually studied, you know, what were the issues that were most important for people and what information did they need? And then we would study how if we taught people that information, if it helped them and how it helped them. One of the big projects we did was actually, you know, holding different courses uh, for different people who need information about coping with mental health right now. So we had one course that was for healthcare providers and people in social services who, you know, give services to people with disabilities. One course was for families who were doing family caregiving. And then one course was for people with, um, you know, intellectual or developmental disabilities themselves uh, to help them understand better how they can manage during the pandemic. And in each of those courses, you know, we made sure that the people who were learning the stuff we're also part of our teaching team um, so that we could all sort of be teaching things together. Um, and then we were able to study, you know, did we teach it right? Did people like it? What did they like about it? How did they use that information? Um, another thing we've been studying uh, is trying to understand what's so stressful at this time and uh, what are some things we can do to make people's jobs, for example, working in the sector less stressful. Uh, or how can we help families so that if they're dealing with stress, um, what might help them? Uh, and some of that work includes, um, you know, different kinds of um, therapies that we used to give in person, but that now we might be doing virtually. So things like mindfulness, for example, or ACT, acceptance and commitment training, different ways to sort of teach people in really chaotic, you know, in hard times, what are a few little um, practical things people can learn to do 
to help them manage when the world around them uh, is not going the way it should. Any key takeaways from, from that research that you'd be able to share? Um, well, one thing that we learned that I thought was really important, maybe across a lot of the studies, is that uh, even though people aren't um, able in a lot of these projects to be sitting in the same room together, that there are ways we can build community and connect people virtually. I think some people need more support to figure out how to do that. Um, and it can be hard to learn some new skills, but people can learn them. So there's real benefits to feeling like you're part of something and you're not alone. Um, I think we also learned that, um, you know, it's not a one size fits all kind of thing. Like everyone needs to have this treatment. It will make a difference and it will work well for everyone. We have to figure out what works well for different people. So some people have a lot of free time. Uh, some people can concentrate for a long time sitting in front of a computer screen. Some people aren't like that. So we have to come up with different kinds of solutions for different people. Um, and I think we also learned that it's really important when we teach um, or design things to get the input of the people who are going to be participating to design or teach them well, that that makes a, that makes a difference. Speaking of all that, you are really composed and kind. How do you balance work life from home life? How do you like just take a break and like recharge your batteries for the next day? Because for all of us, it really takes a mental drain out of all of us. But you're the big boss around CAMH, you like keep going and like keep innovating all the time. How do you like not be susceptible for burnout? And how do you like keep your fire to keep going? Wow. Um, well, sometimes it's interesting, Victor, that you talked about, you know, the, the, I don't know, calm or whatever way you describe me. Sometimes I feel like I'm more like a I'd love to say I'm a beautiful swan, maybe I'm just a duck, but you know, on top of the surface, things might look really calm, but underneath I might be working with my little um, webbed feet very, very quickly to sort of uh, paddle along and stay afloat. So I don't think I'm any different than other people. Um, sometimes people we think who look calm maybe aren't always feeling quite as calm as, as they look on the outside. Um, but two things I guess I think I do that help. One is I love the work that I do. I'm really passionate about it. And I think that it nourishes me more than it depletes me. So it kind of gives me energy and makes me feel excited. You know, I want to work on something that I know is making a difference. I love connecting with people. So I think that helps me. Uh, and also I try not to put too many demands on myself um, when I'm not at work. So um, I have a pretty quiet uh, life um, when I'm not working. I might just be you know, my favorite thing at the end of the day is to have a little ice cream bar and put my feet up and watch something on TV. Uh, right now I'm watching uh, Squid Game, which is kind of disturbing, um, but it's something I I'm watching with everyone. Yeah. It's I'm an amazing it. show. There we go. See, so my boys, you know, said, no, we're going to watch this and we're going to watch it together. And there's nothing that makes me happier than just kind of sitting down and, and putting all my phone far away, my computer far away, and just getting engrossed in something on TV. So that's a little something that I do. And, and I mentioned I have a dog. Um, so she's a pretty active dog. She's a husky and she loves to be walked. And if I don't walk her, uh, I'm gonna pay for it. So 
every single day um, I get a lot of steps outside uh, and I think that that helps me a little bit too but you know some days are more stressful than others sometimes I'm able to do more than other times so I just try to forgive myself and understand um, that I have to pace myself depending on how I'm feeling that day you are so amazing so that's it for Yona Lansky. Thank you for being the first guest of season two. We love having you, Yona. Thank you for giving us this platform. Me and Daniel, thank you so, so much. And we'll hope to see you next time. Yep, it's been great speaking with you today, Yona. Thank you. Thank you both. Can't wait to hear the rest of the season. This podcast is brought to you by the Asrielli Adult Neurodevelopment Centre at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, Canada. We would like to thank our producers Irfan Jiwa, Afriz Gadimi, and Anna Yang for helping to keep us organized and all the behind-the-scenes work.